Well, good to see you guys. Glad you're here. Um, We've been talking, as John said, about teachability. And teachability um, is something that is really important in our life, and this is why. Uh, We really do need wisdom. We need wisdom and truth. And the reason is, is we can define wisdom as the correct response to a specific situation. Okay? And we need to really figure out how to match up the right responses to right situations. And so we need to get a firm grip on truth. And so here's an equation of how to get wisdom in your life. It is experience with truth. And we're defining truth here as reality. Okay? So experience with truth plus time equals wisdom. There's no way to shortcut this. You can't take out, well, there is a way to shortcut it. You can't take out time out of the equation. There's a way to make that. Time is variable, though. We can make it longer or we can make it shorter. And the only way to make it shorter is to be teachable. We have to be able to allow pain, trouble, God's word, and people speak into our lives to allow us to make progress year after year so we don't live the same year over and over and over again and grow really slowly. Because slow growth equals more pain, right? Slow growth equals more pain. So today we're going to look at a villain. Um, that really cuts off teachability. And that's really what we're focusing on, is these villains that cut off teachability. And um, this villain is relativism. We're going to use a real formal definition of relativism here, and then we're going to move into kind of an everyday relativism point of view, and we'll get into it. So here's our formal definition. Relativism is the doctrine, and doctrine is truth here, that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to Follow me on this. In relation to culture, society, or historical context. It's not absolute. So knowledge, truth, and morality change according to culture, society, or historical context. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Relativism in of itself is not necessarily bad. It just depends on how you apply it and what you apply it to. Right? You follow me on that? For example, if you asked me, hey Scott, are you a good surfer? I like to surf a little bit. Compared to somebody who lives in Missouri, I'm great. Compared to a fifth grader, I'm great. Actually, there's some fifth graders that shred up all over. But, you know, I could claim the title surfer to those people. But compared to John John Florence or some of these professionals, I stink. Like, I'm terrible. Shouldn't even be called a surfer. I'm some guy who dabbles in surfing. So relatively speaking, I'm a good or a bad surfer, right? That's an easy example. There are more complex examples you can apply relativity to, but that's easy. So when does relativism become a problem for us? When does this concept of blurring truth become a problem for us? So, um... Just so you know, this isn't going to be a comprehensive message on relativism. I'm not going to answer every question. We're not going to look at all the different cultural hot topics that are relative and where relativism actually has a say. But I just want you to be aware that this is a very common theme in our current worldview. And what my goal today is to kind of give you the understanding and the tools you need so you can take these tools and then apply it and figure some of these things out yourself. So you can seek truth, is what I'm trying to do. So, in order to do this, 
I really want to use a couple characters to help tell this story so that's not just me telling you a bunch of facts up here, okay? Now, here's the problem. You're going to kind of get into my mind here a little bit, okay, and into my obsession. In the summer, I like to read um, adventure books based on real things that actually happen, sometimes historical, sometimes modern. Sometimes there are things that have gone horribly wrong, and it's, you know, we can learn from it. Sometimes it's really cool stuff where I'm like, yes, I'm going to conquer the world too. But it's great to do in the summer. I recommend it. But here is two characters I want to introduce yourself. I've been reading each one of their books lately, okay? It's, there's a picture here. It's Tommy Caldwell and Alex Honnold. Okay, Tommy's the guy on the left with kind of the blue-purple, and Alex is the guy on the right with dark hair and on orange jacket. These guys right now are two of the best climbers in the world. Okay, hands down, the best climbers in the world as of now. Um, I think Tommy Caldwell is about 37, 38, and Alex is about 30. Or turn, around 30, 31. Don't call me on that. That's, that's relatively true. Okay? <laughs> it could change. <laughs> um, so they've climbed a lot of climbs together. They're buddies. They've climbed a lot of climbs independently. But their biggest claim to fame have been on El Capitan in Yosemite. Here's a picture of El Capitan. If you've been there, you've seen it. It's huge. It's great. It's magnificent. Um, it's a 3,000 foot solid piece of granite that's perfectly climbable. Okay, it's clean, good granite. Okay, most people aid climb it. This is a picture of someone aid climbing, which means they use their equipment to stand on. They don't actually climb like you, you know, like you think with your hands and your feet, like in conventional climbing. They actually just use gear, and the gear climbs the wall. They place it on different cracks and on ledges and in hooks and stuff, and, and then they stand on the gear. kind of seems like cheating, right? It's not. It's really hard still and really scary. You don't know when you're going to fall. <laughs> All of a sudden, the gear gives out, and you have no clue it's going to give out, and then you fall. So it's pretty, pretty scary. So um, it takes the average person three to five days spending out of the wall to climb El Capitan. Okay? Here's an example of the exposure you would you would see. Here's a picture. Um, that's about two-thirds of the way up the wall, looking down. They're on a ledge. And you just live in this exposure for those three to five days, okay? So, first we're going to talk about Tommy Caldwell. In 2015, Tommy Caldwell climbed a route on El Capitan called the Don Wall. Here's a picture of the Don Wall. Um, this is considered today the hardest climb in the world. And the reason it is, not because it has a specific pitch that's hard. The hardest pitch in the world right now is 515D that's been climbable, okay? Real quick, real quick history on how hard things are. 5.1 is the easiest technical rock climb, and 5.15D right now is the highest. And once you get to 5.10, it starts going A, B, C, D. The average person could train their entire life, okay, sports-specific rock climb training, and never climb above a 5.12, okay? Anybody who climbs above a 5.12 has a tendon mutation, okay? And there's something wrong with their mind. So... No, they just, they have a tendon mutation, actually. So, and maybe some other things. So, you just can't, you can't go out and decide, I'm going to do this tomorrow. So, this climb is considered so hard because it's more than 20 pitches, which is a rope flink, of 514s stacked on top of each other. Nobody's ever done it. So, in 2015, him and Kevin um, Jorgensen did a complete push. It took them 19 days of climbing this free with hands and feet, okay? Not with gear, with hands and feet. They climbed it. There's only been a handful of people that ever free climb any route on El Capitan. Mind you, the hardest one on El Capitan. 
took them 19 days to do it. Um, they slept on the wall. Here's a picture of them sleeping in their tents on the wall. And they did it in late December, early January, so that their hands wouldn't sweat. That's how important it was. That's how hard it was. And their shoe rubber wouldn't get warm and stretch. That's how hard it was. Um, so because the climb is so difficult, training is key, okay? And here's how he trained for this. It took seven years to be able to do this climb. This is what he did. For three months, he would train at home and in his gyms and stuff, 14 hours a day, getting his body in shape for this. Then, the climbing season for El Cap is only three months long. He would go live on the wall. Here's a picture of him living on the wall during that training season, just hanging out, working every day, living on the wall or at the top of the wall or at the bottom of the wall, and they would either jumar up or repel down to where they were working, and he would work each specific pitch, rehearsing it over and over again, memorizing every move and working out every move. Six years of three months at a time, working this out until he can do it all in one push. Sounds tedious, right? It sounds like a lot of work for something so useless, right? Um, <laughs> but he's getting paid the big bucks for it, so I guess maybe it's not so useless. So what it came down to at the end of the sixth year, the final week of El Cap season, he hadn't cracked it yet, he was starting to get discouraged, it came down to finding one move. He had this really good... Not really good, but he had a handhold and a foothold for his right, but he couldn't find anything for his left. He needed one move. So what he found was a foothold the size of Madonna's mole. Six years, he couldn't find it. (laughs) And a handhold the size of a ribbon on a basketball. And that made all the difference for him to complete the sequence and then to come back the following year and do it all in one push over 19 days. So here's a picture of him on a really hard move, like the one I described. Like... Uh, <laughs> it doesn't look very fun, huh? <laughs> These guys are full of muscles, but they're super small, huh? It's pretty amazing. Like, I think there's muscles that anatomy and physiology hasn't even counted yet that they've developed. So, <laughs> um, Here's another picture of him doing a roof move. It's about 1,500 feet below his feet right there. Um, now, now, just so you know, even though he's free climbing with hands and feet, he is roping in for protection against the fall. If he falls, he's protected-ish. <laughs> you know, your gear can fail. So, <laughs> But I've seen him take some like 60-foot falls, and it catches him. So. And also vertical. You just don't hit anything on your way down. It's great. Um, <laughs> um, now, let's go to Alex Honnold real quick. Alex Honnold is another guy who just recently, June 3rd, a few weeks ago, is the first person ever in the history of this world, unless... Somebody didn't, didn't tell anybody, but I don't think that's possible. Um, who climbed a route, not the same route, but a route on El Capitan, like a 512 route, still really hard, free solo. Which means with his hands and feet, no protection, no ropes, no pieces of gear, just chalk shoe, or climbing shoes and a chalk bag. And some water in his pocket and a couple bars. And he did it in four hours. The whole wall, 3,000 feet. The speed record on El Cap is 2 hours and 23 minutes, set by Alex Honnold. Um, this is considered a great feat in, climbing, in the climbing world right now. It's pretty incredible. He's being hailed as one of the best climbers, if not the best climber ever. And he's making every professional climber feel like they're just a scumbag. Like, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> it also has a lot of people worried for him. 
because he's done this for, since 2008. He's been climbing free solo, some of the biggest routes in the world, and shocking everybody and not falling. He says, when he's asked about, because he's always asked, aren't you worried you're going to die? What if you fall? He just says, I don't climb anything I can't climb. I climb with absolute perfection. I am not going to fall. I'm just not. Uh, what motivates him really is to live a life of being uninhibited by the constraints of this world. He likes the idea of being a small person on a large, unforgiving wall and completing it. Um, he always describes it as, it's rad. <laughs> it's rad. <laughs> so anyways, when him, and Alex get, or when him and Tommy get together, he's always trying to convince Tommy to free solo. You'd think it'd be the other way around, right? He's always saying, come on, man, you could do it, you could do it. And Tommy just says, Alex, this is what he says. And this is all important. This all makes sense here in a minute. It's not just me telling you a cool story and then we're going to go have lunch, right? Um, <clears throat> Alex, he says, Alex, I've fallen ten times in my life unexpectedly on easy routes. He goes, even if I don't care about my own life, I find it incredibly disrespectful to my wife, my two kids, and my parents to unnecessarily risk my life when I could easily rope in. So the way these two reconcile those differences and stay friends is they agree to disagree and they basically say, you do you and I'll do me. And they coexist. What do you think we can learn from Tommy and Alex's attitudes toward climbing? What do you think we can learn from their attitudes towards gravity? Is Alex just, is he really appreciating the reality of gravity? He's gotten away with it so far. But is he really appreciating it? And should Tommy stage an intervention? I mean, should we all go? Should we? Actually, a movie came out a few years ago called um, Valley Uprising about the history of climbing in Yosemite. And Alex is in this amongst with Dean Potter, who passed away a couple years ago. And all these guys are base jumping and free soloing. Not all these guys. Some of them are in this movie. As soon as that movie came out and was viewed, Cliff Bar pulled their sponsorship from five of the climbers in that movie. Because they said, we're not going to support people who are pushing the limits this far. We're not going to support people who base jump or free solo big walls. It's just something we don't want on. And I, I agree. I think it. Now all the climbers are like, "What do you think we were doing all these years?" You know, like <laughs> it's dangerous. <clears throat> so um, let's consider another example found in Scripture. Here's Matthew twenty-one, twenty-three through twenty-seven, and this will kind of round off our examples, and then we'll get to the point here. Okay? Um, and it says. And when he entered the temple, this is Jesus, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him um, and basically said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you that authority? Okay? Jesus answers them and said, hang on. I will ask you one question. And if you, t and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And the chief priests, now remember, these are people who were waiting for the Messiah, who had devoted their lives to the scriptures. Guess what? The Messiah is standing right there. And they say, and they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, well, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. 
And he said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He cut them off. They were not interested in truth, were they? What do you think they were interested in? They were interested in protecting their position. They didn't even consider truth. All they considered was protecting their preferences and their, their, their preference in the moment, which was their position. Truth did not matter. So relativism, in both, these pass- in both this passage and also in this story with Tommy and Alex, more with Alex, relativism becomes a problem when knowledge, truth, and morality ask us to change from our preferences, status, and current worldview. And let me explain how. Um, what relativism does is it makes foggy things that are clear. This is really important to understand. Relativism makes foggy things that are really clear. The reality is, is truth actually matters. And there's two types of truth that philosophers use to describe truth. We have subjective and objective, okay? And this isn't going to be a holistic presentation of this, okay? So just follow me. But objective is basically truth that exists constantly and is, it's a hard truth. It doesn't change based on the context. It's solid. In our story, even though this could, you can kind of argue this, that it's still somewhat subjective. But in our story... Gravity is our objective truth, okay? It's constant. If gravity changes near El Cap, we have a real problem, okay? Something that we won't even worry about. (laughs) Um, Something else went wrong. However, well, never mind. We're not going to get into that. I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. Excuse me. Um, I was going (laughs) to (laughs) say, gravity does change based on your position to density, but, you know, and mass, but... um, we're not going to go down that trail right now. So, for, um, but I just want to be intellectually honest here. Okay, um, Subjective truth is something that changes. It's contextual. So, for example, here's what I mean. Okay, Let's use Tommy and Alex here. Here's what's true. Here's two true statements, but they're true differently. What's true is that Alex Honnold is a really good climber and hasn't fallen during any of his free solos. He says, I just won't fall. This is true so far, right? It can change tomorrow. He is a really good climber. He hasn't fallen. And he says he just won't fall. This could change tomorrow. A hold could break off. He could get a leg cramp. He could pass out. A rock can fall from up above, which happens constantly in the Yosemite, and hit him. This could change. Or he could just be thinking about what he wants for dinner and forget where he's at. That's actually happened to climbers before. What's true, here's another true statement. What's true is that Tommy Caldwell is a really good climber. He says, I can fall unexpectedly at any time. I may fall, so I'm roping up to reality because gravity kills. The truth is objective and it answers to a high reality that is constant, meaning gravity. Here's a quote from John Piper that that kind of fleshes this out. It says, Relativism is a revolt against the objective reality of God. Hear that? The objective reality of God. The sheer existence of God. If there is a God, the sheer existence of God creates the possibility of truth. Objective truth. Okay? You guys following me? God is the ultimate and final standard for all claims to truth. Who He is... What he wills, 
What he says is the external objective standard for measuring all things. When relativism says that there is no standard of truth and falsehood that is valid for everyone, it speaks like an atheist. It commits treason against God. So how does this happen to us? The problem is, is that we are inherently subjective, right? I mean, we're tossed around by our, based on our emotional status, you know, our culture, our upbringing, what's happened to us, even what we had for lunch changes, right? When you're angry, you see reality this way. When you're calm, you're like, oh, it's a little bit different. You know, it's a little bit different than I thought. So we're changed. And, and we have all these positive and negative desires flowing out of us, right? The Bible speaks to this. And what we select as behavior is based on our, our perspective and our values. And our mind is really what, you know, where that selection process happens. So here's an acronym that you've seen before. It's called the SAD Heart. And this really explains kind of what we're dealing with, or where these positive and negative desires are coming from. Is it stands for um, a stubborn, self-centered Heart, which is basically every child. You've seen this. You've been this way. I want what I want when I want it, right? I want what I want when I want it. Um, Arrogance, I deserve what I want. I deserve it. And damage to others, which is I will hurt you to get what I want because I want it when I want it and I deserve it. This is what we're constantly battling with, right? You guys agree or loosely? Okay. (laughs) Um. Our mind is where this happens, and our mind is not necessarily trustworthy either. Look at this scripture in Romans 12, 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If our mind needs to be renewed, what does it have to say about it? By the testing that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, Romans one twenty eight. this is um, a picture of when mankind exchanged the creator God as no longer being their source of truth and life and worship and glory and exchanged it for a host of other things down here on the world, usually meaning themselves to be gods. This is what happened. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, absolute truth, objective truth, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Like free solo me, no cap. Just kidding. (laughs) There's actually worse things. So if our mind is not trustworthy, then what's controlling the path of our behavior in life? So what's really at stake here, guys? What's really at stake when it comes to relativism? And this is it. It actually enslaves people. Relativism enslaves people. John eight thirty one through 32, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And this truth, objective truth, will set you free. Because here's what's happened, guys. Let me pause for a second here. Is, and I'll, is... What relativism does is imagine here's your subjective definition of truth and your objective definition. You guys see them right here? It takes them and it blurs them and swirls them like this to where you can't discern. And then it just says, oh, it's all subjective. Basically eliminates the objective definition of truth. Does that make sense? Whether you agree with it or not, my analogy makes sense. 
It's kind of like you have both of them and then subjective truth comes and just eliminates objective truth and this is all we have. That's relativism in a nutshell. I mean, there's probably more to it, but for today's sermon, that's it. So, since our desires and our sad heart is what rules us, right? Without the renewal of our mind, the scripture says, you guys following me there? We become slaves to these desires when we cut off absolute objective truth. When we ignore gravity, we become slaves. Relativism provides the cover that we need to do what we want. It provides the cover we need to do what we want. And I really think that is why it is so alluring. That is why it is so attractive. Because it gives us the cover to justify and do what we want. I struggle with this constantly. I'm like, is it really wrong? And what I'm really saying is, I really want it. Is the Bible really clear? Because I really like this world view I have right now. So we have to be malleable. So, here's another thing that it does. Objective reality cuts off our only source of objective truth, the Word of God. Just like Tommy and Alex continue to live in a world in which gravity exists constantly, we do live in a world where certain objective truths exist. Whether we see it or not, buy into it or not, it's there. And if it's there, and if it's objectively true, we need it. We desperately need it. And this way, relativism robs us of the objective truth. And what it does is it changes our cognitive structure. Okay? It blurs things enough where it changes our cognitive, our thinking structure to where it's very difficult to learn, hear, and perceive crucial, needed truths, which is language. It foggies up language to where we no longer can get truth into our life. So here's another quote from John Piper speaking of this. It says, The mind has become a nimble slave to their passions. The mind has become a nimble slave to their passions. And language, hear that? Language does the dirty work of covering up the corruption. One of the most tragic effects of relativism is the effect it's had on language. In a culture where truth is esteemed as something subjective and external to ourselves that we should pursue and embrace and cherish and employ for the good of the people, language holds the honorable, hear that? Language holds the honorable place of expressing and carrying and transmitting that precious cargo of truth. That precious needed cargo of truth. Language carries it. In fact, a person's use of language is assessed on the basis of whether it corresponds to the truth and beauty of the reality he expresses. This gives rise to every manner of spin. The goal of language is no longer the communication of reality. Did you hear that? The goal of language is no longer the communication of reality, but the manipulation of reality. It no longer functions in the glorious capacity of affirming the embrace. Excuse me, I lost my. Affirming the embrace of confessional truth. But now it functions in the devious capacity 
of concealing defection from truth. Concealing our defection from truth. Timothy says it another way. He says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, that sound doctrine is, a, is objective truth from God. Instead, to suit their own desires, hear it? Their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth, not subjective, but objective here, aside to myths. And myths have two kind of meanings. One is is that they're untrue, but two, a myth is also just an anthropological term used for, it's what our culture tells us about ourselves. And it may or may not be true, but we believe it. Um, teachability is lost and the pipeline of learning is cut off when this happens. Okay? Just like this picture here. This is a broken pipe. This used to carry essential, life-giving, needed water to a community. Okay? Somehow it got broken. Some kids probably messing around. <laughs> probably not, actually. <laughs> um, broke the pipe. And no longer is needed essential water flowing to this community. It's cut off. And that's what relativism does. It cuts off this essential truth. Kills our language. We can't even perceive it. We don't even know when it's in front of us. Because we've, we've blurred reality. So here's how God can help us battle the villain and remain teachable. Okay, And this is important. Because God really does help us. God is capable of... of imparting truth to us, even in a culture where this is prevalent, even in a world, in a culture where our thinking is governed by relativism. God is able to help us. And this is God has revealed truth to us. He has given us the Bible and the life of Jesus. He has shown us there is gravity. And here's our response, guys. And this is really crucial. Our response can be to rope up to his truth. We need to rope up to his truth. Since relativism skews our perspective of the Bible by allowing our preferences to rule, we struggle to gauge capital T truth. It's hard. You know, when it comes to gray matters, we can all be subjective all day long. Like, I really like mint and chip ice cream. It's great stuff. You should try it. Go out today and try it. However, when I go into a Baskin Robbins, mint and chip is no longer my lady. You know, it is all about the gold medal ribbon. And if you haven't had gold medal ribbon at Baskin Robbins, you are missing out. This is like the best chocolate ice cream mixed with the best vanilla ice cream with the best caramel vein swirled through the whole thing. And occasionally, if they scoop it right, they get a good vein of caramel in there. And it is good stuff. <laughs> you got to try it. <laughs> but then, if I go to Rite Aid, guess what happens at Rite Aid? I want rainbow sherbet. And I look at mint chip, and I look at rainbow sherbet, and then I get chocolate malt crunch. <laughs> you know, that's just how it works. <laughs> so... I hope we can remain teachable in these areas. 
Another area where God helps us is he's, he's, God has really provided a way for our mind to be transformed by truth. He really has. His Holy Spirit really does change us and helps us. Uh, Romans 12, 2 is an example of that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern. Discern's important. means understand. Language is important for discerning, right? That you may discern that what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, Tommy Caldwell and Alex Honnold, or Tommy Caldwell, more, when he was training for those six years, that's a good picture of discerning truth, right? We need to have the same attitudes towards discerning truth out of God's Word. We need to train. We need to know where that foothold is, the size of Madonna's mole when we need it. We need to know where that handhold is, the size of a basketball rivet when we need it. And we need the ability to use it. Because sometimes life gets that crucial. Here's another way is God gives us a new life in which we can battle the desires that justify our preferences that lead to a troubled life. Um, God really does give us a new life. He has given His Son, Jesus. He has come down as Jesus and He has lived the perfect life, fulfilled the law, paid the price on the cross. God's wrath was poured out. He, was, he died. He raised from the dead. It was accepted. And now we can exchange our lives for the perfect life of Jesus. We can be redeemed. We can be remade. We can have the Holy Spirit dwell in us and change us. As this scripture says, which we won't get into, I'm going to skip it for the sake of time, is we can basically put off the old life and put on the new life in Christ. So God has also given us relationships in this world. This is another way he helps us. Relationships for the purpose of shedding his light. And this happens in two ways. Each one of us struggles to gauge truth at times. Even when it comes to Scripture, we struggle. Our preferences, our worldview, our perspectives, our history feeds into that sometimes. And we need the Holy Spirit. But God uses people too. We need someone who can come alongside of us and gently walk us through it and allow us to be where we're at, right? 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. This is they see the objective truth in your life. They see you climbing El Cap. They see you roping in. They see you actually making it to the top. And they want that. Because they're stuck on a wall. Does that make sense, my analogy? (laughs) They're stuck. But it says, do this with gentleness and respect. Because these are people that God God has created. Sometimes we also just need to be patient as we spread truth. Um, God really is in control. Um, And he he can make his ways known. He's capable of rescuing people and making his truth known. And we're part of that. Um, But here's here's Philippians 2.15 says, Do all things without grumbling uh, or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among them whom you shine as light to the world. And here's the reality of this passage. And I'll close with this. Roping up to truth not only saves our life, 
but it can also save someone else's life by pointing them to the to God and His salvation. I want you guys to take out your hand down and there are some next steps. And I want you to add one to it, okay? In the area where what's at stake, all those three different areas and what's at stake, I want you to, if you want to do this, I want you to think this week about what's a personal example of each one of those categories that applies to you. What's at stake? Are you in bondage? Do you not have truth? Have you been enslaved? Are you covering up truth with your preferences? Do you need help? And ask God to help you. Let me pray, and then we'll continue with worship. Lord, I just thank you that you've given us your word, and that you've given us truth, and that you have revealed yourself to this world, Lord. You have not hidden yourself. You have revealed yourself. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we can be light. It is a precious cargo of carrying truth and transmitting it, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you help us. I pray that in our generation where language has been changed, that you will make clear your word. You're capable of doing this, and we trust in you, Lord, and we will continue to, with, with, with humbleness and just a willingness, Lord, to, to, to work under you and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.